there, lovely people, and welcome to Fuzz on Film. Okay, to begin with, time for a quick peek behind the curtain of Fuzz on Film. We have a list of potential main episode themes that will comfortably last us into our old age. Okay, older age. <laughs> Often selected for a particular passion for the subject. Our recent Pedro Almodovar episode or our Studio Ghibli series, for example. Or because we think it's an interesting idea. Modern day black and white or Bond knockoffs. But as to why and when we do a particular theme, that is also extremely carefully considered. By which I mean it's mostly chance and whatever <laughs> one of us happens to fancy it in any given month. And sometimes we're so short on time and or inspiration, or more often due to our ridiculous aforementioned topic list, so paralysed by choice that we have no idea what to do. Such it was this month, but while we were recording our recent Con Air and Passenger 57 episode, I noted the praise Craig in particular had for the acting ability of Wesley Snipes. So, Craig's not here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you'll have to put up with me and Scott discussing a selection of Wesley Snipes' films. But fortunately, I think we both quite like him, so it should be alright. Wesley Snipes, the 56-year-old Florida man, fortunately for Snipes, that's as far as that one goes, <laughs> made his big and small screen debuts in 1986 in Wildcats and Miami Vice, respectively. His 1989 role as Willie Hayes in Major League was the start of a string of commercially and sometimes critically successful roles, culminating in his now comparatively seldom mentioned starring role as a Marvel comic book hero. One of a number of films which leveraged Snipes' black belt in karate and his training in a number of other martial arts such as capoeira and jujitsu. Uh, the idea of covering some of Snipes' comeback films after his conviction and imprisonment for three tax-related misdemeanours was floated, but as the perceived wisdom seems to be, they stink, it was an idea soon defloated. Yes, films largely made for tax purposes. <laughs> and we'll come to those Marvel films that I mentioned in our next episode, but for now we have a selection of seven films covering his 90s pomp. Before we crack on into our first film, Scott, is there anything you have to say? Um, not in particular, I think in general this is mostly selecting his dramatic leanings rather than the action orientated stuff that was also going on at the same time uh, with one uh, representative example I suppose uh, we'll get to uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's largely focused on seeing what his metal is like as an actor I suppose rather than uh, his action credentials which are Pretty much beyond reproach, I would say. Uh, so, yes, I was interested to see some of these. A lot of these I hadn't actually seen. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting to, to go back and see them. Well, yes, I suppose that's also another running theme for why we pick particular topics. Yeah. Passion, interest. It's an excuse for Scott to watch a bunch of stuff he's either forgotten he's seen or thinks he should have seen. Precisely. <laughs> uh, OK, then, let's crack on to our very first episode. Uh, First ep- no, first episode, that was a long time ago. Our first film, which was Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Take it away, Scott. Yes, this joint from 1991 finds us in New York's five boroughs with Wesley Snipes taking the role of architect and professional weird name haver Flipper Purify. Named <laughs> uh, after Dolphin. Yes. It's the Florida <laughs> connection, I've just realised. <laughs> Flipper from Florida. Yeah, it's Miami Dolphins, right? So, yeah. <laughs> They'd be successful at this time, probably. I don't know. Um, Yes, he's angling for promotion at the firm his work has made successful. He's assigned a new temp worker, Annabelle Scoria's 
Angie Tushi. He'd been angling for an African-American co-worker, but this one example of his supposed underappreciation has much wider ramifications than may be expected. Uh, before long, he's embarked on an affair with Angie, soon to be found out by his wife, Loretta McKee's Drew, leading to their breakup, and it also causes Angie problems, both with her racist father and her now ex-boyfriend, John Turturro's Polly. Further family drama from the purifying side of things come from Flipper's ex-preacher father, played by Ossie Davis, and Samuel L. Jackson's crack-addicted elder brother, with everything getting rather messy over the months that this film covers. Now, there's a lot presented in Jungle Fever, but rather like the lives of the leads, it's messy and unfocused. It touches on racism, systemic and overtly personal, sexism, wider problems of drug addiction, wider social concerns, and just about anything that can affect any relationship. What it doesn't do is build anything resembling a narrative out of any of it. Uh, So, while there's nothing disagreeable here, and indeed there's a number of fine performances, of which Snipes more than holds his own, but it does rather reduce to being a bunch of stuff that happens without much meeting. Unless, of course, you somehow haven't already come to the conclusion that racism, drug addiction and cheating are bad things. Now, as we discussed a few times recently, I applaud the representation of these things, uh, particularly for African-American cinema, uh, but I'm not 100% sure it's doing a lot for me. However, it's not a film that's really for me, so perhaps my opinion on that side of things isn't relevant. Uh, I feel on serious ground covering some other aspects. If this wasn't Spike Lee behind the camera, there's moments here to call outright technically incompetent, but I think he's proven himself enough to say that there are failed experiments instead. You know, things like shooting at a boardroom meeting early on as though it's taking place on a roundabout, or oh, that. that. Yes, that bothered me too. I, I have a particular dislike for revolving cameras for no yeah. reason. That one was particularly yeah. dizzying. It's like, they're just sitting at a desk talking. You don't need to circle them as though you're a nutbag. Um, yeah, so, or it's that weird shot he's doing when people are supposedly just walking and talking down a street but they're clearly being pulled along on a dolly so it just looks like they're floating. Yeah, <laughs> It happens a couple of times. It yeah. happens at the beginning, um, and then it happens with later on uh, with Spike Lee's character Cyrus too. And yeah, it's so strange. Yeah, it just it, it's just a little, little thing that um, kind of pulls you out of it. Um, the underscoring in the soundtrack was stomping all over the dialogue, and there's that final shot which I thought had walked in from a Mel Brooks parody. Uh, now, it's. Not a bad film, exactly, but everyone involved, both in front and behind of the camera, has done much better work. Yeah, as I say, uh, purely for focusing it purely on Wesley Snipes, it's a really good performance. Um, very charismatic, even though he's playing a, a character that uh, has has many flaws. Uh, but as a kind of as a film, it's just a bit messy. It's not bad, but it just got the end of it and went, okay, that was <laughs> a thing that I watched, and it didn't really cohere into anything for me. Yeah. Um- Remind me of the final scene, Scott. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a dream or not, but he he wakes up like a few oh, years later, as you concerned, yes. and he goes down and he's approached by what is apparently supposed to be his grown-up kid, saying, "I'm on cat crack and I'm now a hooker." And he goes, "No, yes, I wish he's Darth Vader or something." What's that? Yeah, I, I think the problem I was like, was that just someone saying that because it's very similar to what Halle Berry's character had said to him earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. And he's like, worried about that for his daughter, or was it actually meant to be his daughter? And he's sort of dreaming it. it, it it's an it, odd scene that doesn't really add anything. It's an open question, and I don't care enough to make an answer for it. <laughs> it sounds like I enjoyed this more than you, but uh, as has been the case with other films, I have 
pretty much exactly the same feeling about it, just enjoyed it more. <laughs> it's happened either way. Um, a couple of episodes recently, actually. Yeah, I don't want to say that I particularly didn't enjoy it. It, it bobs along well enough. It was just, again, I got to the end of it and just like, okay, that was a thing, a thing that you yeah. put there. And I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't make any more out of it. And it's, that's the sort of thing when you actually need to try and write notes against it, it becomes kind of apparent that I don't really have a through line to, to go through here because I don't think there is one. It's just a, just a film that's there, which is cool and all, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think everything is done well enough that you couldn't call anything technically bad that like you mentioned earlier, Scott. It's more just, I think, failed experiment. Uh, yeah. It didn't add anything. Uh, and it's still, it's 1991. It's a couple of years after Do the Right Thing. Yeah. But it's still pretty early. Yeah, very early, yeah. his career and he's um, just, again, finding, well, not so much finding his feet, just exploring things and finding a style. Yeah. A lot of his later films are much more conventional. Yeah. Often better for it, but... Yes, so that that's that doesn't bother me so much. So anyway, I know how good a film Spike Lee is. Film, how good a film, how good a filmmaker <laughs> Spike Lee is that I yeah. that I know you there. Um, that's probably why. And yeah, I do come back to what you said too of like sort of a collection of things that happen that don't seem to have an awful lot to do with each other for the most part. Hmm. It almost feels like a series of sketches or vignettes. Yeah. Um, which only exists to put forward a point or point of view or propose an idea to make the audience think. Yeah. And only connects together in the the loosest way in terms of what happens to the characters in the film. Yeah, exactly. And it's a very valid criticism. It's just, it didn't bother me as much as such a thing often might. Uh, probably a lot is to do with the fact that it's really good quality acting in it. Yeah. Uh, that makes a big difference. And there are little moments too that I love. You're talking about one of those uh, scenes when they're almost dreamlike being pulled down the street in some sort of trolley or something. And it's a scene where your dolphin fella, um, <laughs> because Flipper, oh, stupid name, <laughs> Flipper's talking to Cyrus and like he's saying, Why have, um, how did Drew find out? How did, how did she find out that I was cheating on her? <laughs> um, and the the look on Spike Lee's face is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He's <laughs> one step away from sort of whistling insistently. Like, I don't know. Um, look over there, and that, that really amused me. So there's certainly some humour in it, and so the relationship stuff at least has a through thread. Even though, for instance, the scene with Drew and her friends talking about, I. Uh, but it's like different degrees of black and the problems that they see with black men and stuff. Yeah. Like, it happens a bit in the thing, but all those earlier is a far more cohesive film in that sort of regard. Um, the sort of Spike Lee, this un- angry young uh, black man, and that's the key word really is the black bit. Um, the way he's seeing people with the same colour treated in the country he lives in and how they're yeah. treated. That... It's a lot of it just feels like polemic, um, mm-hmm. just sort of raging, and it's legitimate, but it doesn't necessarily make for a good narrative, or in this case, absolutely does not make for a good narrative. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of author insertion going on here. Um, yeah, it's the most of the characters appear to just basically be Spike Lee's viewpoints in different ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, at the same time, the the fact that the acting is so good and there's a lot of other like technically good things about the film too that I think 
is why that doesn't become the problem it might. Yeah. Uh, and again, Wesley Snipes is great in it, uh, front and centre. There's a few other people I'd like to... Uh, no, sorry, before we move on, just what I was going to say is, in terms of the narrative, though, and nothing really coheres, but for the most part, the whole Gator, um, Samuel Jackson storyline, mm-hmm. almost seems to be taking place outside of this film. Yeah, it almost leads into New Jack City, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> um, also, the that does lead to seeing... Eddie Murphy's big brother, which was strange because I, this guy looks so like Eddie Murphy and he yeah. sounds so like Eddie Murphy, but I know it's not Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Impersonator or something? No, Eddie Murphy's brother, that explains that. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, it's a good film. It's just, it's all, it's barely a film, is the real problem with it. <laughs> yeah. Sort of a bunch of sketches stuck together. But, I still enjoyed it, and I actually quite like to see John Turturro in this. He's almost like the exact opposite of his character and do the right thing. Yeah. And that's quite nice to see too. Um, yeah, the only other thing I have to say about it, and it's my single real criticism, and you've mentioned it already, but it did sort of drive me crazy at one point, was the the overscoring, or technically I think you should probably call it oversound tracking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> which was egregious. Uh, it's one of two films in this batch where that was a big problem for me, although this is very much the worst of them, uh, the worst of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's because I think every single scene has music playing and it's almost always too loud and quite often not necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, I think in particular the scene that bothered me is when Drew and... F- <laughs> I think it's so hard to make myself say Flipper Scott, which is a stupid <laughs> name. Also reminded me of somebody from our high school with that name, at least it was a nickname. Yeah. Um, it's not clear whether that's the case here. <laughs> um, yeah, the the scene where Drew and Flipper are in the back room of Bloomingdale's where she works and they're um, trying to talk about the relationship and stuff, and it just the music just seemed to be getting louder and louder. And I just, yeah. just let them talk. It's like really, really important stuff, and it, it's that, if anything, that really belies um, how early in his career I think Spike Lee is. He's, you're already got the problem of author insertion and sort of it being kind of polemical, and, and now you're trying to dictate mood really heavily with music, and it's yeah. it's too much. Again, it's 1991, it's one of Spike Lee's first films and he would very much go on to get better. So in hindsight, he gets a pass on a lot of it because yeah. I know he's going to get better rather than like crying him out as being terrible or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty egregious... Well, it sounds more like a mastering error than almost anything that was intentional. It just it was, it was, just seemed far too loud. for yeah, it, was, it was stomping so... over the dialogue. I had real trouble making out what people were saying at points and that's not really the... <laughs> Not really what you want from any kind of communication <laughs> medium. Also, uh, kind of a meta thing about the film, but kudos to whoever designed the poster for this. I do love the poster. Black and white uh, fingers intertwined to look kind of like tiger stripes to mirror the jungle fever idea. Oh, yeah. It's a really clever poster. I really like that. Yeah. We're probably done with that one, though. Yeah. So bring us on to... A film, a film with a much less imaginative poster in New Jack City. Yes. Um, 
Now, while it had been a long time since I'd seen it, I always had the idea that I really liked New Jack City. Certainly, seeing it, I guess, around its VHS release for the first time, so possibly not yet a teenager, it was one of the first adult films I saw, with its 18 certificate, its sex and drugs and violence, and its gangsters. As such, I was really looking forward to watching it again, hoping that it would still have the cool menace promised, then and now, by the sunglasses and berry wearing Wesley Snipes on the cover. <laughs> Snipes plays Nino Brown, who, along with his brother G-Money, Alan Payne, gets in on the ground floor of the crack epidemic and creates a massive drug empire in Harlem in, from the mid to late 80s, working out of an apartment building they control like a military establishment. Undercover police officers Scotty Appleton, Ice-T, and Nick Peretti, Judd Nelson, of the Maverick don't get along with each other sort naturally, are tasked to go undercover into Nino's organisation and obtain the evidence needed to bring him down. Movies have moved on since 1991, and I particularly have moved on since then. <laughs> New Jack City has not. <laughs> it's so of its time that it's painful. A time capsule that oozes late 80s, early 90s from its every pore. A black exploitation film brought to you by MTV. You can see a lot of what the director was aiming for, though, um, and it was certainly trendsetting, casting rappers and having a full hip hop and RB soundtrack. However, Mario Van Peebles' attempts to create the Scarface for Black America might have been more successful if it hadn't tried so hard to reference Scarface. Yeah. If what he was aiming for, though, was bringing the black exploitation films that his father Melvin was known for up to date, and he was quite successful, broadening the characters a little and making a noticeably slicker final product, which no doubt contributed to its success commercially and critically at the time. Where it is saved, and I anticipate this being a recurring theme as we go along today, is in Snipes' performance. He's not the most physically imposing person, standing at only around 5 foot 9, but his performances always belie that, and as Nino Brown he's magnetic, absolutely delivering on the menace promised by the poster. The scenes with Nino and his brother G-Money are particularly engaging, and Alan Payne also acquits himself well. It's actually surprising to see that his film career is so scant. The rest of the cast is a mixed bag. The late Bill Nunn is fine, but his turn as the, the, the man, <laughs> the actual credited name, is no Radio Raheem, and while I think Chris Rock does a fine job as the unfortunate Pookie, the truth is that Chris Rock, no matter the role, always seems to be Chris Rock. <laughs> Judd Nelson is, frankly, uh, and Ice-T tends that way, and certainly relies too heavily on Brad Pitt-style hand movements. Though to be fair to Ice-T, he does have a few moments. As for the plot, it's unremarkable but entertaining enough, though Pookie's plight might have been milked for a little more tension. The police investigation is perhaps the least compelling part, especially compared to the likes of Deep Cover, which came out the next year. That film shares a number of similarities with New Jack City, and while its villain can't hope to compare to Snipes, the undercover cop thing is handled vastly better. In truth though, I think New Jack City doesn't contain any huge faults. Though, the out-of-nowhere, ludicrously coincidental revelation about the fate of one character's parent can, as they say, do one, um, 
It just suffers now from feeling tired and cliched when it felt much fresher at the time. Still, I continue to find it enjoyable enough to recommend if you feel like watching some more Wesley Snipes. But what's he you, Scott? I agree completely on Snipes' performance. He's clearly the best thing in here by a while, uh, by a good long chalk. Uh, I also agree completely about Judd Nelson, who every time he appeared on screen, I asked, why are you in this film? And <laughs> no answer was forthcoming. Because not only is he awful, it's a character you could easily cut out. I mean, yeah, he, he does nothing. literally nothing of any use, and uh, ooh, he's yes, very bad, very poor, very poor. Uh, Ice T's okay. It's just kind of hard to take Ice T seriously these days. He's been just so thoroughly memed by these sort of SVU screen cap things. It's just difficult to take anything that he says seriously anymore. I'm uh, unfortunately unaware of any of that, but um, <laughs> look so him up. That, that pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, and as for the rest of the film, it's it's, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm fairly sure I've not seen this one uh, before now. As you say, definitely a artifact of its era. Uh, but it, it, I was annoyed with it at points because it seems to be setting up many more interesting things than it actually winds up doing. It seems like it's going to play heavier on the kind of um, intrigue or uh, them betraying each other. It's like setting up for something a bit more intimate and personal, the way that you think this may kind of come to an end with, you know, the uh, Snipes stealing his brother's girlfriend, all that kind of thing. You think that's going to play out in some way, and it kind of does, but more or less doesn't. Anytime it looks like it's threatening to go somewhere interesting with that, it just has another shootout, which is um, seems like a kind of cop-out way to do it. Yeah, it Um, does. um, It feels... I'm just going to end up saying exactly what you said, Scott. It feels like they're going to go down the sort of the jealousy revenge thing, and it yeah. almost becomes inconsequential. Yes, yes. It just focuses more on the kind of, but again, but legitimate enough, and we've seen in other films what the you know the younger brother wanting to be have more power, more control, whatever. Yeah. Um, and the jealousy part of it not really playing into it so much. Yeah. Once again, I'm waving my hands because again, that works so well on a audio podcast. I think that's, that's probably about as much as I've got to say about it. To be honest with you, um, it was it wasn't a unenjoyable watch. Um, if if you're in the, the market for this kind of thing, it's you, you, as long as you can sort of go in expecting that you're not going to get something that's particularly cutting edge and up to date with uh, modern film practices. It's it was entertaining enough, certainly. In terms of, again, what we're talking about here, Wesley Snipes is great at it, and uh, it's a performance that you should be seeing probably probably for that alone. Um, the rest of it is... The rest of the surrounding material is merely fine. I can't get too excited about uh, recommending that people do it, but if it's the sort of thing that's uh, in your alley, it's a, it's a reasonable exemplar of the type. Yeah, <laughs> That's really all I've got to say about it. I mean, to be honest, actually, earlier today, I was actually questioning whether I had seen this or not. It took me a little while to actually kickstart my Oh, right, yeah, that that film. So it, after less than a week, I've already forgotten most of it. So I'm not going to say that it's uh, going to be an enduring classic for the ages or anything like that. But yeah, it, it was fine. Although, um, to be honest, with... Uh, uh, with your self-confessed issues of memory of late on this podcast, I'm not sure I would particularly consider that a, necessarily a bad sign. Uh, yeah, the big problem is that Wesley Snipes really is fantastic, and he, he's he's cool and he's menacing, um, even while wearing some truly ridiculous clothes. <laughs> yes, for some reason, 
somehow he makes them work. Um, <laughs> he doesn't immediately look ridiculous, which says a lot about him. But uh, when he's not on screen, yeah. um, the film really stutters. That's the big problem with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, before we move on, we've not have a great deal more to say about New Jack City, but um, you mentioned shootouts, which I had a bit of a beef of within this film because apparently almost everybody involved went to Stormtrooper school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a hit at a wedding, and people were standing still <laughs> with machine guns or assault rifles can't hit a sodding thing. Yeah. And then the very next scene is a drive-by in motorbikes with apparently a 100% <laughs> Yes. It's an odd film in those terms. Um, I don't know if that's just bad filmmaking or maybe that's sort of a a legacy of its kind of black exploitation roots. Yeah. I'm not as familiar enough with that, John, to know whether maybe that's kind of a trope in those or something. Although it's kind of a trope in any action film where it's convenient that people don't get shot when you need, don't need them to. Yeah. So there's that. I'm going to move on to sort of slightly comedic drama, I guess. Yeah, once again, we're terrible at the whole linking devices thing. Scott, white men can't jump. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in which we move to the other side of the USA with uh, Stipes playing Sidney Dean, who is about to be hustled in a game of street basketball by Woody Harrelson's Billy Hoyle, whose talents are often underestimated because he is white. Here is the real racism, people, as some YouTube d- would probably tell you, many of whom may have been standing for UKIP in the UK EU elections. Billy's trying to make enough money to get him and his girlfriend, Rosie Prezi's Gloria, out of debt from the mob over Billy's gambling debts, the two living on the run, with Gloria boning up under general knowledge for her highly anticipated appearance on Jeopardy that's surely just around the corner. And also being an alcoholic for one scene and then never having that prot strand picked up again, which is a bit odd now it occurs to me. Um, anyway, Sydney tracks down Billy... Uh, first with a proposal of a hustling partnership and after some double-crossing unpleasantness to go on to win a tidy sum of money in a tournament to get Billy out of Hawk and Sydney and his family out of the rough neighbourhood that they still find themselves in. Sounds like a plan, if only Billy can keep his propensity for gambling under control. Spoilers, he cannot. Now, I'm not going to claim that White Men Can't Jump was ever a film that's been a favourite of mine, but I liked it when I first saw it, what, 20-odd years ago? And I'm gratified to find it a think I like it just as much now um, mm. based on uh, that's as I just pointed out based on some pretty shaky memories admittedly but uh, <laughs> yes uh, this Snipes Harrelson double act shows a lot of charisma and the script has some pretty funny lines that are being thrown out more or less non-stop which is what you want in a comedy uh, the basketball action is well handled and the relationships all feel believable enough it's a really enjoyable film and it's one of the most easily likeable films in the Snipes cinematic universe uh, why wouldn't you watch this well, I can think of no reason why you wouldn't. Yeah, it's it's a thoroughly entertaining film. Again, I like you, Scott. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I remembered very much liking it when I saw it in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've not seen it since then. And I watched it again now, and yeah, still really like it. Um, mm-hmm. It helps. I like basketball a lot, uh, but it's more just there's just really good chemistry between Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. They yeah. play off each other well, and. Again, this is like we're another film, not quite in the same way as something like, for instance, Demolition Man, which we'll come to shortly, but where Wesley Snipes' just athleticism helps because yeah. um, um, it happens. Also, get to another degree, one of the later films we'll come to as well, that some actors in a role like this just like 
seeing them running about and stuff, you get a feeling that, well, A, they probably have to fake it a lot, a lot of cutaways and things. Um, yeah. Or they, they just don't really have that physique. And it's, Wesley Snipes just sort of fits. Mm-hmm. Harrelson, I'm not so sure about, but I didn't really question it. So I guess that means he did well enough. But with, with Snipes, I'm like, yeah, that all seems entirely legit. Yeah. Um, I'm buying that, that, which helps a lot. Yeah, it's it's just a fun film. Um, it's just one of those films where the character will do something incredibly stupid and you find that frustrating because you find you care for the character. Yeah. Um, so rather than saying, that's really dumb, so, oh, why are you doing that, you idiot? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in particular with Woody Harrelson deciding. And so I think every bit as stupid is... Uh, Michael J. Foxy's Martin McFly responding to <laughs> claims of being called Chicken in yeah. the second Back to the Future film um, when out of nowhere he suddenly resents the fact that um, he can't dunk and says he can't <laughs> dunk, even though Wesley Snipes barely said anything and loses yeah. all the money they just won <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, very entertaining film uh, yeah funny you know, sort of touching a few places certainly if um, Everybody seems quite real. Yeah. It is a kind of a hustle con film. And so, you know, in those films, someone is always going to get stiffed. It's just a matter of how, who and when. Mm. Um, and it actually happens quite early in this film, which is a surprise. So you kind of don't have that tension of waiting for that to come. And yeah. it works as a, a character piece after that. I'm not saying that's either good or bad, just different for the genre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely one of the ones in um, our episode tonight that I would most highly recommend. In fact, the one I would type most highly recommend, I think. Yeah, it's certainly the one that's, as I say, it's, it's the most likeable film that we're certainly going to talk about here. A lot of uh, Ron Shelton's little cottage industry that he's got of directing these kind of sporting drama type films. He's got a whole list of them. Before getting to Hollywood Homicide, which I think uh, pretty much put the put the brakes in his career for a while, um, yeah, it's, it's just a really good natured and um, still amusing film after all these years. So yeah, definitely worth looking out. Wow, Hollywood Homicide, yeah, that's remember Josh Hartnett? No, <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> so just as Ron Shelton demolished his career with that choice, which brings us to Demolition Man. Still got it, Drew. Still got it. Yay. Yay. What is it? Exactly that you've got, Scott, and is it contagious? <laughs> so, for a... I was going to say possibly silly. Entirely, utterly silly film. Yes. <laughs> this turns out to be the one that I've written the most for. <laughs> by a distance. So, so folks, buckle in. Uh, one of the earliest films I can remember going to the cinema to see with Craig and or Scott was indeed 1993's Demolition Man. Yeah. A film which seemed to have a strong impact on us as exchanges of mellow salutations, Craig Eastman, and have a peachy day, Scott Morris, <laughs> and the like persisted for quite some time. And actually, to be honest, haven't 100% ceased to this day. <laughs> Another early film we saw together was Chain Reaction, so sadly not all of those experiences were quite so fun. <laughs> and if you don't remember Chain Reaction, I envy you. <laughs> um, it's reasonable to say then that I rather enjoyed Demolition Man at the time, but in retrospect that may be because my thinking brain hadn't grown in yet. 
However, so many of my issues with the film are caused by a single fatal flaw and fixing that would resolve so much. But we'll get to that. The feature film debut of Italian video artist Marco Brambilla and, apparently, ripped off from a novel by Hungarian writer Istvan Nemere, whose work, crucially, does not contain this film's fatal flaw, Demolition Man came towards the end of the big man, big action period typified by Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Brutal, old-school warrior-style Los Angeles cop John Spartan, do you see what they did there? (laughs) Played by Stallone, is known as the Demolition Man for the destruction he causes while hunting down criminals. The destruction caused when he finally brings Wesley Snipes' urban terrorist Simon Phoenix, who will rise from the ashes. Do you see what they did there? (laughs) To ground largely comes in the form of multiple dead hostages. Deaths laid at Spartan's feet which sees him condemned to the same cryogenic prison as Phoenix. Hop forward to 2032 where Phoenix is unthawed for a parole hearing, escapes and causes all kinds of mayhem unhindered by a police force of bumbling idiots and brain-dead simpletons who, apparently, are actually able to dress themselves in the morning. (laughs) But since we never actually see it, I remain unconvinced. Having absolutely no idea what to do about Phoenix, or probably even slightly too loud music, the feckless San Angeles Police Department arrange for the thawing of an officer from Phoenix's own time, John Spartan. In this brave new world, Spartan is greeted by Sandra Bullock's Lieutenant Lenina Huxley. Do you see what they did there? And dropped into a society where, despite the fun made at his expense due to his lack of knowledge of current bathroom habits, he's seemingly the only thinking adult. While wrecking a decent portion of the city with his Neanderthal ways in pursuit of Phoenix, Spartan uncovers the dirty truth hiding just beneath the squeaky clean veneer of future America. There were also car chases, gun battles, hand-tied fighting and such like. And Stallone's the hero. The best thing about the film, by far, is, again, Wesley Snipes. Dressed, for some reason, like a sociopathic children's TV presenter <laughs> in orange t-shirt and dungarees, he is clearly having a blast. He takes the film exactly as seriously as it deserves to be taken, without ever winking about it, and takes us along for the ride. He even gets one of the more memorable movie deaths, even if I'm not entirely clear on what the wee blue ball actually is. (laughs) Stallone, as I've said before, isn't so hot at the old acting, but he does have charisma. And while he seems out of his depth in the more gruff and serious moments, in the lighter, goofier, novel way to fix the lack of toilet paper problem moments, he's really fun. Likewise Sandra Bullock, who in this period... Speed would arrive just the next year, wasn't perhaps being stretched as a thespian, but was likeable and fun, and plays Huxley with the earnestness the role needs. This, of course, in comparison to nowadays, when she's miserable and barely tolerable. Hell, even Rob Schneider's presence isn't as objectionable <laughs> as you'd expect. This is the one and only time you'll ever hear me say that. Yeah, still not good, just... <laughs> Just, just not, not, not greeting. Yeah. Yes. So all of that seems reasonably positive, you might think. So, what's the problem? Well, there are two. Firstly, there's the tone, or rather, tones, 
At times the film seems to be trying to present the dystopian future of shiny societal bliss with a rotten core. Like that film with Pete Postlethwaite in the space condom. <laughs> Aeon Flux? Not someone. Um, and at other times it wants to be idiocracy. Either is fine, but the two do not sit well together. But the key problem, the issue that undercuts everything, is the timescale. Setting things in the future always has the potential to age a film and probably seem particularly short-sighted. 1982's Blade Runner and 1984's The Terminator had futures that were set in, respectively, 2019-2029. They may seem to have comically missed the mark viewing them today, but, you know, it's not so hard to imagine a through line from our present to a time when their futures aren't so far-fetched, and possibly not even on the longest timescale. Crucially, the people still seem recognisable. Demolition Man, on the other hand, begins its descent into future dystopia a scant three years after its production date, and the main bulk of the film takes place less than 40 years hence. A time in which all crime has been eradicated, all memory has been eradicated, apparently all thinking has been eradicated, and the entirety of human civilization has become unrecognisable. Mm-hmm. It's not just preposterous, it's stupid and offensive. A woman in a restaurant, a Taco Bell, the only extant restaurant, though famously Pizza Hut in Europe, treats John Spartan like he were Brendan Fraser's California man come to dinner. Shut the hell up, lady, he's about the age of your dad! <laughs> Bob Gunton's witless, hapless police chief is another example, not being enormously younger than Spartan himself. And there's even still an officer on the force who served with Spartan in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Compounding this are several snippets littered throughout the film that suggest the current blissful state of affairs can't be much older than 15 or 20 years at a stretch. As such, it causes the film to fail utterly because nothing any character does or says carries any weight or truthfulness, nor the society in which it is set. What is worse is that it is unnecessary while it'd still suffer from being too idiocracy and not enough brave new world, nothing that happens requires it being set in 2032, and the tiniest of changes in the script to have Spartan awoken a couple of hundred years later would solve almost everything. Naturally, none of this is stuff my then 14-year-old brain considered, and my vastly superior current brain still did find some enjoyment re-watching this. But... I just could never recommend it now. I 100% don't care about the timescales, but um, <laughs> it, it. I know things were bad early 90s in LA, but what kind of mindset must you have been in, in 92, 93 when you're sitting down to write this and thinking, well, things are, I can see the way things are going, and I reckon in three years we'll be in an all-out war zone and we'll have invented cryo-prisons because that's the thing that we'd be able to do in three years <laughs> from a standing start of nothing. It's like, well, that presumably must have made some sense to someone at the time. It's kind of a baffling thing to think about. Um, yeah, um, you're, of course, entirely right about the uh, the time slips uh, that's going on with it. It is stupid, but it's a stupid film. <laughs> it's just about arch enough to get away with it. You're saying that Simon's not winking at the camera, but there's there's a fair amount of winking going on throughout it, the whole, you know, 
it, it's not quite as fourth wall endangering as um, Last Action Hero, but it's got some fairly similar DNA in there somewhere. Um, talking about prisoners, President Schwarzenegger and things like that. Yeah, um, there was a wee bit of that back and forth between them and films at that time, it seems. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, no, it may have only been Demolition Man and Last yes. Action Hero, but it feels like there was much more of it. <laughs> yeah, there's probably more of it going on sort of around the, uh, in the press around it, with the kind of one-upsmanship from you know, Rambo and Commando and all that stuff that yeah, was so fairly well publicised. Hollywood thing as well, I guess. Yeah. In, in terms of a film, it's, it is it is also too stupid to recommend, really, but <laughs> I, I still enjoyed it. Um, I, I think most of that is um, a holdover from nostalgic uh, viewings of times past. It's, of the films of that era, it's kind of big enough and dumb enough to kind of have some sort of recommendation for it on that basis. Uh, but... Uh, Mainly, it's a recommendation, as you say, would come from a performance from Wesley Snipes, who, again, just knocks out of the park um, in his weird hair and bizarre outfits and uh, little quips and side effects. And, yeah, it, the, the way he seems so so just so pleased to have come out of cryosleep as being such a such a better killer. Uh, he, seems, he seems to be having so much fun that it's uh, hard not to get swept up along that and rooting for him, even though he's a bad guy. Harder to root for Dennis Leary because, well, Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary starring in the role of Dennis Leary? Yes. Basically. <laughs> yes. Uh, and no one wants that. <laughs> it's not a good thing. Yeah, um, the action set pieces still work more or less fine. I don't mind everyone being an idiot because it's an idiotic film, but yeah, if, if you were if you <laughs> if, if you want to take it seriously, then yeah, you're not going to get an awful lot of joy out of this. But uh, yeah, the fight and the action scenes kind of hold up. Um, Stallone's charisma and Snipes' charisma sort of carry it mostly through, I think. But yeah, I can't give it a strong recommendation, but I still enjoyed it. Such is life. What well, else is I? I like the fact that I maybe for the era not having much choice, but. A lot of practical effects, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the sort of futuristic-looking cars, and they look reasonable enough. Um, yeah. Were given to them by General Motors. They're part of were, uh, part of a fleet of concept cars, right? Um, and they, they look reasonable enough. They don't look far-fetched or anything. Small electric cars nowadays kind of look like that, and that's fine. Uh, well, I just stood out to me though, and it's where CGI would really have helped. Is that not quite sure why, but they have kind of expanding steering wheels. Yeah. When you're using the autopilot mode, they, they sort of become smaller and move away out of your way a little. They were clearly made with vacuum cleaner hoses. Yeah. <laughs> and they look like they're made with vacuum cleaner hoses. <laughs> um, sort of things like that take me out of it a wee bit, but given the type of film it was, it, the, being taken out of it doesn't really matter. Nor is the silly idea that Sylvester Sloan is big into knitting. Yeah. Um, which really, I think they could have really hammered on that. Yeah, really, should have leaned into that a bit more, yeah. Yeah, gone for that. Made that a really big running joke. Yeah. Um, although it does seem like the the writer and director had the same sort of memory issues or, like, or thinking issues that most of the cast or the characters had. Because like the stuff that seems significant... It's never visited again. Um, Sylvester Stallone is at some point wondering what has happened to his daughter. This seems quite an important thing to a person. Mm. Um, and at the end, by the end of the film, uh, it's just never brought up again. 
he just sort of basically wanders off happily into the sunset, quipping. Yeah. Yeah, but your daughter? <laughs> your da- no? No? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it is very, very stupid. I have lots of problems with it. <laughs> yet I still kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> You're right, Scott. It, it may be partly nostalgia and memories of having watched it all those years ago and the uh, the sort of memorable quotes from it and stuff but yeah I definitely couldn't recommend it though it's too dumb <laughs> talking of too dumb and at the risk of giving away how I felt about this film will we move on to to Wong Fu thanks for everything Julie Newmar no I just don't want to talk about it very much um, okay <laughs> right <laughs> uh, slight change of pace for Snipes here as he takes the sequined mantle of Noxima Jackson a New York drag queen who alongside Patrick Swayze's Vida Boheme win the drag queen of the year heats and a flight out to Hollywood to compete for the national title however they take an interest in upset youngster Chichi Rodriguez played by John Amo, and they resolve to take Chichi along and train her in the arts of being fabulous but their travel allowance won't stretch to an extra plane ticket, so they purchase a vintage Cadillac and set off for a cross-country drive, hampered by some hassle from Chris Penn's Sheriff Dollard somewhere in the West Holland, Middle America, after some tumult caused by fending off his attempted rape. They knock him unconscious and flee, thinking him dead. They don't have all that much time to process their situation, before the car breaks down, stranding them in the small town of Snydersville until a replacement part can be ordered. They settle in for the weekend, making friends and dealing with enemies in their fierce style while Dollard tries to track them down. Now, uh, I find it difficult to get too worked about about too Wong Fu in either direction, to be honest. There's certainly things here I could sit and get upset about on a narrative level, even for something with no, apparently no greater aims than being aroused about comedy. It's all frightfully superficial, and while it's touching on society's attitudes to those slightly different from the majority, it's not exactly doing very much with it. it also, I'm apparently supposed to believe that this entire town didn't recognise a drag act when they see it. Um, anyway, none of that's troublesome enough for me to get really upset about, and the central tree will provide just about enough charm to push through and make it a watchable enough film and one of those occasional filmmaking coincidences this was made and released around about the same time as the similarly structured Priscilla Queen of the Desert I think time has been much kinder to that uh, so perhaps a little disappointing this its heart's probably in the right place but uh, and for the theme of this podcast I suppose I can't really fault Snipes' performance but it's just a little too fly away to recommend in the slightest This is a film I probably saw roundabout when it came out uh, although probably in VHS um, at home and I remember thinking it was quite entertaining don't think that now <laughs> uh, this is the only film of the ones I watched this podcast that I could barely keep my concentration on mm-hmm. um, when my concentration was on it I largely found myself saying well this is fracking stupid <laughs> Because it's kind of just offensively stupid and stupidly offensive, and it bothered me. Um, it leans quite heavily into cliches for pretty much all of it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, and there's also, but I have a number of issues. Uh, <laughs> first of all, is the fact that apparently every single person in the films a moron except Stockard Channing. Yeah, against <laughs> um, like, but these men who in dresses who. Clearly, largely like men in dresses because, um, and not something I know much about. I've never even seen like RuPaul's Drag Race or anything. But this other drag queen thing isn't 
like a man trying to appear like a woman. Yes, it's not an attempt to pass. It's very yes, much exactly. the opposite. Yes, it's a very specific thing. Um, <laughs> and it's generally like very over the top, uh, glamorous for um, particular people's view of glamorous. But um, you know, it's, it's a very um, heightened thing. So they don't look like women. They look like men in women's clothing, um, and it's just the fact that what that every single person they meet wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, as on top of that, right? Because they are just men, and they, the film takes quite great pains early on to mention the difference. Like you know, um, we're not transvestites. That's a very specific thing in the character's world. Anyway, I'm not sure hmm. what actually what how you'd actually define it. But saying that um, transvestism is a sort of titillation thing. It's not transsexualism. It's not like a person who feels that their body is the wrong gender, or however you would like to sort of describe that. That these are gay men who just basically like looking like this. Yeah. Okay. In which case. Why do they wear these clothes the entire time? Yeah. Because they mentioned more than once, basically, this is really dangerous. Well, it's not a point of principle because you don't do it for against if you were transsexual. Um, you thought, well, why should I hide my identity? I feel like I'm a woman. I'm going to dress like a woman. I mm, would like yeah. surgery, etc., to actually become as close to like biologically women as I could be. No, they're just men who like dressing up. Wear normal clothes. I know half the film disappears, but all of your problems with them as well, for the <laughs> yeah. most part. Uh, so th- that really bothered me, because they mentioned a couple of times, like, yeah, if things could happen to us here, we could get beaten up or something. Well, yeah. Put some jeans and a shirt on and take the makeup off. Yeah. Think you'll be fine. And then the, the idiocy continues from there. We're supposed to believe at some point that they don't know which state they're in. Yeah. <laughs> really? A state's a, a relatively large thing. You're going to be in any given state for a while. I'm sure you'd know. Yeah. <laughs> also, I, also, I imagine if you are someone who's living somewhere in, in the middle of America, you're not going to be particularly happy with this representation of what small town life is like because apparently it was straight out of the 1920s or something. <laughs> very strange. Yes, and also um, apparently this small town where everybody's blind and sh- or stupid, uh, is has like all sorts of festivals, despite the fact there are like eight people living. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, all of these things are problems. And then the other thing, um, it comes back to tone again, or I guess topic, in that like, it's, it's an incredibly throwaway film for the most part. Yeah. It isn't really trying to... Uh, make any strong points, but there's some really serious stuff in there. Yeah. Um, and there are two things in particular. Um, one is the domestic violence thing that's happening to Stockard Channing. And that is, again, also, the, the, um, the, there's a number of times. Actually, the film's not entirely clear whether it's having Patrick Swayze be aware of her thing or not, because sometimes he seems to be playing it like he buys her explanations, sometimes doesn't, before taking action. Yeah. Anyway, um, and then there's the whole um, Chris Penn's 
uh, Sheriff Dullard, who's uh, who's attempted sexual assault um, yeah. of a person after his racism um, is basically ends up being played for laughs because it turned out to be a man that he tried to sexually assault. <laughs> uh, it, it's so weird that, that those things are even in there. And then also at the end, the whole town, well, I don't know if it's, you know, a dozen people maybe, um, every single one of them stands up to the quite clearly crazed gun-toting sheriff guy or state trooper or whatever it was he was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- th- there are big problems with this film. And so it's the only film in this that I I couldn't find basically anything positive about. Apart from some of the performances, I guess, aren't bad. It's just they're in service of something so stupid that I didn't care for them. Although there is a little amusement to be had watching Wesley Snipes put on stockings, lie on the side of his side on in his bed, kick his feet, and <laughs> giggle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there are a couple of moments like that towards the start of the film, and it's like, ah, oh, this is quite funny. Ah, uh, uh, that was it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth yes. watching maybe the first five minutes and then you can probably <laughs> skip the rest of it. It's an odd film. Yes. Um, and not a very good one, but it's, no, it's, it's a odd film. So we're not fans of that, but are we fans of the fan? See? It's easy. It's easy. <laughs> the fan, then, or a platonic fatal attraction with baseball. Naturally, that's a rather flippant way of putting it, but it might be enough to quickly give you a flavour of Tony Scott's 1996 thriller. Robert De Niro's Gilles Renard is a diehard San Francisco Giants fan, a knife salesman and a lousy father. After abandoning his primary school-aged son at Candlestick Park to rush to a career-crucial sales meeting, which he misses, (laughs) Gil in short order loses his job, his son and his mind. Kept from his son by a restraining order, he turns his attentions instead to the giant's new star signing, Bobby Rayburn, Wesley Snipes, and begins to stalk him. Yay! <laughs> Sports fans being particular fannies about superstition, Gill attributes his favourite player's current hitting slump to Rayburn's rivalry with his fellow player Juan Primo, Benicio del Toro, in particular the fact that Primo has Rayburn's preferred shirt number. Gil confronts Primo in a hotel steam room, and when he refuses to give up the number, Gil kills him. To death? (laughs) A fickle Candlestick Park crowd boos Rayburn in the aftermath of his teammate's death, but when he starts hitting again, he's suddenly their favourite son all over. Only Gil is displeased this time, as he thinks it's due to him, and, well, you know, maybe a little gratitude wouldn't go amiss. Spending a lot of time near Rayburn's beachfront house, Gil is present when the baseball player's son gets into trouble in the ocean and rescues him. This affords him an entrance into Rayburn's house, where Gil gets super creepy and totally would have boiled the bunny had there been one to hand. <laughs> Dissatisfied that he's still not getting the thanks he believes he deserves, Gil snatches Bobby's son and holds him hostage, demanding that the slugger hit a home run for him in that night's game. Having stipulated because he's crazy, but unfortunately not stupid, that he'll kill his son if the pitcher serves him up an easy ball. The scene is set for a tense finale in which Rayburn must hit a home run, 
or hope the police find his son um, before the end of the game, which could come sooner than desired thanks to a torrential rainstorm. The fan is, unmistakably, a Tony Scott film. Isn't it just? (laughs) Though, since it isn't quite as stylistically wearying or cut anywhere as frenetically as some of his work, that's not an instant warning sign. (laughs) In fact, the fan is a serviceable enough thriller, though not one I'd advise making extraordinary efforts to see. However, should you come across it some rainy afternoon, then it could probably entertain you for a couple of hours. And it's not one of De Niro's best performances, but it's fortunately a far cry from the usually bloody awful performances that have been his stock in trade post Godsend and Hide and Seek. And the air of menace that he so often exudes is of key importance here. This is perhaps one of the less compelling Snipes performances in this match, largely though because his role is much more reactionary than in many of the other films, as well as being only the co-star, not the star. But, as you'd expect, he's at least solid, and the anguish, frustration and fear evident in his face and eyes in the film's denouement are very believable. The fans' biggest failing is that it doesn't really go anywhere we've not been before, nor take any interestingly different routes to get there. There are certainly tense moments, but we know pretty much where we're heading from the off. And... Thief? Foof? Foof? I have no idea how to pronounce this <laughs> name. I've never seen it in my life or anything like it. It kind of looks like the beginning of Phoenix, so I'll go with Thief. Thief Sutton's script, <laughs> based on a novel by Peter Abrahams, spends little time examining Gil and how you reached this point. And its exploration and critique of the capriciousness of fandom is only of the broadest, most obvious kind. Again, though, I found it passable enough, and I don't regret my time with it. I'd just have liked a bit more meat. Kind of like ballpark hot dogs, really. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, again, first time I had seen this one didn't do a great deal for me. I can kind of see a number of the moving parts that just didn't quite come together in the end it's sort of going for a kind of I don't know halfway between falling down in Cape Fear or something like that you know but it's you can sort of see where it's going for it just seems like one of these scripts that's somehow attracted a level of talent around it that the script doesn't really support you know there's a lot of talent both behind and in front of the camera and they've all uh, for the most part seem to be doing their best but just none of it really joins up at the end of the day um, you're right it's probably Snipes has the least to do here in, of any other films he's uh, he's fine but it's mainly the De Niro show and it, the script just doesn't really go into enough depth or enough interest about his character or his mental state for this to really make a lot of sense it seems to be trying to split a lot of his time between him and Snipes' character but Snipes' character has literally nothing to do apart from he can't hit a ball and then he can hit a ball and there's, <laughs> there's, not, a lot, there's not a lot of tension to be had with his character for the most part um, uh, you know, he feels a bit sad because he can't hit a ball whereas other guys you know, the nearest characters where all the interesting things should be and it's sort of glossed over in a number of <laughs> typically Tony Scottian pacey sequences that uh, don't really give you this actual emotional need for it. Um, yeah. because it's much Scott-style over substance approach, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because it's a Tony Scott film, it hammers along quickly enough that 
you know it's it's not an it, it's not a chore to watch the film mm-hmm. um it's there's enough sort of slickness there to kind of get through it but when you get through it there's not really a lot of reward or interest there <sighs> yeah so th- it does make it hard to recommend uh, yeah that, that, I, I didn't enjoy it all that much is all i can say it's it's not the worst film even it was spoken about here, it's uh, it's serviceable, but nothing particularly outstanding, and definitely not really worth trying to make any effort to track down if you've not seen it. I'm pretty sure I'd seen it once before. I could remember the the rainy baseball game quite clearly, right? Although I did wonder whether I was confusing that with bits of the Last Boy Scout, which which I remember right. also looking similarly <laughs> yeah. moody and rainy. Um, although that's about American football, not baseball, but. Uh, yeah, the problem is, is that Gil Renard is so straightforward, bog-standard, cookie-cutter as a villain. Yeah, um, yeah. And De Niro, Wales performance is fine, he can do this in his sleep. Yeah. Um, and you, know, you compare this to something like his turn as Max Cady in Martin Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear. Mm. That's a villain. Yes. You know, it's, um, this is very much the... Diet Coke of it, yeah. Yeah, the, the off-brand version of it, yeah. So I, I found it reasonably enjoyable. It's just there's so little substance there. I just want more. Um, yeah. That's the problem. Not an awful lot more to say about this one, though, I guess. No, no. So let's go on from that film that ends in one night game to one night stand. I'd have gone more with the, 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 the baseball Stadiums have stands, and this is what you, you can probably work something like that. Just oh, so I, workshop it a bit more. Yeah. Um, your liking device would have been just as woeful and embarrassing <laughs> as mine, so I don't feel so bad about it. By, by which, of course, you've been excellent. Um, yes, but, naturally, that, that's <laughs> what I was looking for, Scott. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, one night stand. Uh, to be honest, I don't think I'd even heard of one night stand before this last round of Snipe Chat in the last uh, podcast uh, there. Which yeah, still Craig uh, mentioned it. Was, uh, Brand new to me. Yeah, which is perhaps a little odd given that it's Mike Figgis's follow up to the very successful Leaving Las Vegas, which I was very impressed with back in the day. We we'll have to revisit that and see if that one holds up because, uh, well, we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> th- this sees Snipes as Max Carlyle, a successful commercial director, seemingly happily married to Ming Naz Mimi. He's rather pointlessly narrating this directly to us when he meets up with his estranged former best friend, Robert Downey Jr.'s Charlie, who's just found out that he has AIDS. Or, well, he's HIV, I suppose it would have been at that time. Um, on the return trip home, he crosses paths with N- Natasha Kinski's Karen and impulsively they sleep together. However, this one-night stand, boom, title drop, has wider impact over the coming year as fate, or narrative convenience, throws them together time and time again, particularly after the reveal that uh, Karen is Charlie's brother's wife, said brother being played by Kyle MacLachlan. Now, we have come to a degree full circle, at least in terms of criticism of these films. Uh, just like Jungle Fever, this is a soundtrack that stops all over the dialogue and mm-hmm. just just like Jungle Fever, it's throwing a lot of stuff on the table of race relations, romantic relationships, commitment, fidelity, all that and inviting you to make your own narrative out of it and it's certainly not going to bother doing one for itself. However, <laughs> it is much, much worse than Jungle Fever on every level, which at least felt that it had a direction it wanted to go in. Uh, one Night Stand just wanders aimlessly in a circle for an hour and 
and a half and then stops, <laughs> wasting some half-decent turns while involved in the service of, well, I'm not precisely sure what. Its commercial fail- failure was richly deserved, and I'm not sure I've got all that much to say about the actual film. Now, the production of it, though, oh boy. Um, apparently, Joe Esserhouse gets paid $2.5 million for a four-page outline, which becomes a script that Figgis more or less entirely ignores and half improvises. This sort of decision could only be made by execs on the same level of drugs that Downey Jr. was on during filming. After this, he immediately checks himself into rehab because he was, well, as close to death as the character here was. What a cluster cuddle. Look, to be honest, I'm surprised it is not worse. It is, however bad and should be ignored um yeah how does this film have a budget of 23 million dollars i'm guessing that's joe Esserhouse's script and cocaine (laughs) robert downey jr was paid in buckets of cocaine that's the only explanation yes figgis apparently has been i was reading some interviews he's quite he was quite he, he thought this was the film that's going to sort of take it to the next level because Leaving Las Vegas was critically acclaimed. It wasn't like a huge commercial success and he thought this would be the one that sort of punted it open uh, to, to wider doors. But despite the fact that it's just obviously dreadful. I mean, yeah, I, don't, I don't see how you can get all of the script and go, yes, yes, this is it. And then if you did think that, why well, you would then toss it out the window and make your own one up after paying so much for the uh, Esther House version, which... Back in the days when Joe House could be paid money for his drivel. Um, no, just nonsense on, on every level. I don't understand what's going on with this film at all. Um, it's, yeah, it's probably the worst Snipes performance, maybe, uh, in here. But that's maybe not fair. The acting's probably okay. It's just acting in service of nothing and yeah, lots of I, things I, that don't go anywhere. Yeah. I just had no problem with the acting. And there were a couple of moments, actually, that I, was, I found quite affecting with Wesley Snipes. Um, one moment in particular, and just, he's quite believably crying. It's, it's quite convinced that uh, yeah. right as Robert Downey Jr. is approaching the end of his life. Mm-hmm. So there are definite moments there, but the film as a whole, why does this exist? Yeah. I'm so pleased that I, I was worried that I was missing something and that you were going to say, oh, this is a masterpiece. Like, no, it's crap. I'm, <laughs> I'm so pleased that you're going to Yeah. This film absolutely gets off on the wrong foot too, because, I mean, it's absolutely not a blanket thing, but um, I think we're both largely in agreement that voiceovers generally don't help a film. There are there are times when it works, hmm. but certainly when a film for no reason starts with the character directly dressing um, addressing the camera. Yeah, that annoyed me more than it being a voiceover because it's it's that breaking the fourth wall in the first what five minutes and then it's not done again if I remember rightly until the very end of it. So why bother doing it? And there's nothing that he says that is of any use to be told at that point that you couldn't have done by any number of other ways. It's not even um, breaking the fourth wall in the first five minutes. It's the first thing that happens. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Immediately, um, he's addressing the camera. But then, yeah, that's absolutely dropped the rest of the film, and there are two other voiceover moments during it. But like, why, why, why do that at all? Yeah, it adds nothing. then also in the other start, I was like, I'm already thinking, I don't think I'm going to like this. Yeah. Um, and then they had a really stupid actress um, who apparently wasn't caught by the director, who thinks that that big international cooperation organisation that's based in New York is called The Un. <laughs> 
because she refers to it as the un. <laughs> and, oh, yes, um, it basically doesn't get better from there. Yeah. Uh, it's... There are so in terms of the relationship between Natasha Kinski and Wesley Snipes, that is perhaps the one bit of the film that works too because they have they're almost mugged. There's like you can see that there would be some like kind of tension between them. They've yeah. gone through a traumatic experience, um, and it they don't immediately jump into bed with each other. It sort of bells during the night. Yeah, and I'm like okay that. It sort of works, and then we get another bit of voiceover which says, "Like, well, during the next year, nothing was quite the same for me." Like, okay, show don't tell, but okay. Uh, then we jump forward a bit, see a couple of moments where it's they're supposed to be suggesting that I guess that Max's changes become really, really unreasonable, but I'm not quite sure how they figure that. Since the big way they seem to be saying it is Ming Na who. I think everything I've ever seen her in, I found her deeply unlikable. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if it's, it's her or her characters. Um, yeah. But they're having this dinner party and Thomas Hayden Church's character is being an absolute asshat. Mm-hmm. And Wesley Snipes calls him out on being an absolute asshat. And she seems to be annoyed. Um, and seems to think that he, Wesley Snipes is an asshat yeah. for calling his um, <laughs> partner out and being an asshat. Apparently you saw it quite differently for me because I saw how it was. <laughs> uh, but that seems like the big thing that happens. And then where I was just getting offended by it, I was a couple of times I, I did swear quite loudly um, at the screen. I was like, in a sort of, yes, going to do something um, physiologically impossible to yourself <laughs> uh, with the two spectacularly stupid coincidences um, Spectacularly Stupid is actually quite a common theme through this film. Because <laughs> yeah. he goes back to New York to go and be with Robert Downey Jr. in his final days. And I'm like, okay, well, I assume things aren't so great between him and his wife. He's probably going to try and look up Natasha Kinski. That, that seemed reasonable. It seemed to make sense. But no, a city of 9 million people and the one person he met by chance in the city of 9 million people, <laughs> um, which also had millions of other people who don't live there at the time in particular, because it was really busy because of the unconvention, <laughs> um, turns out to be the wife of his best friend's brother. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that just genuinely offended me. I was very angry about that. And then the stupidity increases because apparently they just, despite having not seen each other all the time, um, but the fact that Robert Downey Jr. is dying and everybody's really upset about that, they can't even step outside of the room <laughs> and he's dying so he sees them. And then they start uh, groping each other and at the funeral. Jeez, that's <laughs> way, like an hour or something even though. So. And then... Um, have you no sense of shame? Have you left no decency, sir? At long last, have you no decency? <laughs> uh, and then at the funeral, um, they decide, oh, well, we should probably shag then, right? <laughs> yeah. So they go outside, and the fairly large grounds of a fairly large house, and they <laughs> come into this building in which 
Cal McLachlan Ming Na are also shagging. No, that that is such lazy writing, and I am so angry and offended by your absolute bullcrap. And then we're supposed to have again. I think the film thinks it's quite clever. The mm. film is not clever. The film is stupid. Yes, <laughs> because it moves to a final scene where once again we we visit the entirely convincingly real Japanese restaurant. <laughs> which it absolutely does not look like a soundstage with some lights behind it. <laughs> absolutely convinces as a genuine real-life restaurant. That was so bad. They certainly didn't spend the $23 million on that set. <laughs> and it seems clear that the film thinks it's, that it's a real twist that you find out that the basically the couples have changed. Yeah. It's like, well, obviously, obviously it was going to be that. Why else would they be having dinner together? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I, I was just so offended by its stupidity and its character stupidity. It's just something I just can't abide. People making nonsensical decisions that like real people wouldn't make for the sake of narrative convenience. Yeah. Uh, although it's the whole cosmic coincidence thing of like well, that woman was also in some way not. That doesn't make any sense. Oh. In a smaller town where people are moving in the same circles. Okay, no, it's New York City. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned the scoring, Scott. I'm going to use my newly cutting phrase of over soundtracking, but yeah, yeah. this film very much had it, um, and incredibly on the nose again too, because as well as being spectacularly unnecessary and too loud, it's just like, well, we're in a Japanese restaurant now, so we'll play some like Japanese-ish. Music to really sell it. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if that's sort of making up for the fact that um, they felt inadequate about how not a real restaurant the restaurant looked. <laughs> They're just overcompensating there. Maybe <laughs> I guess the one thing that's right is that it does give Wesley Snipes a reason. Um, not excuse me, end things first before you start a new relationship with someone else, but like a reason to want to get away from his wife because crikey she was dull yeah <laughs> they're having dinner with Cal McLachlan and um, Natasha, Nastasia Kinski and she's just talking about real estate prices <laughs> those are the dullest people in the world yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, th- this is a terrible terrible film it, as you say it richly deserves to have only made the box office of 10% of its budget because it's yes. terrible <laughs> if you told me going into this that I would find this script less believable Demolition Man. Oh, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but I think it is. <laughs> I, I buy Demolition Man more than I buy any of the relationships in this film, um, which is oh, a tragic thing to think about. Yes, uh, it's, it's given me the fear about going back to leaving Las Vegas, because I really liked that at the time, and I'm worried yes, if I go back I, to it. You know. I have had that in my mind. I, I remember liking that a lot, but it's been a good while since I've seen it, yeah. and I'm, I'm a bit concerned now. Um, <laughs> Especially if this was the fault, not just that it's the same direct, but it's the follow up to it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Hmm. I think that'll round us up for tonight. Yeah, just before we move on, I just want very briefly, I'm not going to cover it in any depth more than a sentence or two, but one of the potential films we had here, um, and I say potential because it's one I already owned, uh, although I never think I, I thought I never did get around to seeing it, um, that we could have covered in this was Rising Sun. Which, we absolutely should have covered Rising Sun. Yes, I, I don't remember it being incredible, but I remember it being perfectly serviceable, and that's better than dreadful. So yeah, it that's it. It's, it's vastly better than 
three of the films we watched for this, we should have watched Rising Sun instead. <laughs> okay. um, so I did watch it. Um, and it's got um, Sean Connery, which I'm generally on board for. He's quite fun. Wesley Snipes is quite kind of snippy in it, which works really well. And it's just... It, it, used the word service from Scots, the word I had in my mind uh, too, which was, yeah, perfectly serviceable thriller, quite slightly produced, interesting like, twists and turns, and good performances. So, so we're not covering it in any more depth than that, but if you want to switch out um, a Wesley Snipes film for Rising Sun, or any of these films for um, another, yeah, ditch one night stand and watch Rising Sun, should you feel in the mood for him. Watching some Wesley Snipes films. Yes, or indeed switch some of them out for Blade 1 and Blade 2, which we'll be talking about in our next uh, podcast as we cover that. And yes, and maybe not Blade Turner. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to watch a Scott. I've managed to avoid it this long. <laughs> We've all suffered, and now you must too. <laughs> it's got Ryan Reynolds in it. It's like Ryan Reynolds... It, is it Ryan Reynolds without a beard or with a beard? I remember that being a thing for a while, that one of those wasn't as bad as the others. If I recall, without, which was not a good oh, thing. Oh, God, uh, no, 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 no. Yes. Uh, I'm ill next week. <laughs> yeah, the best Ryan Reynolds film is still the one where he got buried alive. And I'm not sure if that's just wish fulfilment or what, but yes. They do sort of sew his mouth up and chop his head off in X-Men Origins Wolverine, <laughs> so that's got that going for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's about the only thing, yes. Couple of things on the old Twitters before we go. Um, at Blake Wrights, Perpetual Dumb Machine, and the host podcast, of course. Please come back. Um, yes, Demolition Man is a perfect dumb fun movie, but it was, uh, was it was a central gateway for his younger self into seeing the business side of the movie industry due to the awkward Pizza Hut Taco Bell edit, where in various European regions, really, really unknown for, for those that don't know, was the Taco Bell references don't get a lot of purchase in Europe because there wasn't that many Taco Bells at the time and indeed there still aren't now so it's changed the Pizza Hut I, I always remember it as being Taco Bell in the cinema though but probably just because I've seen the um, American release a number of times after that it's probably just been replaced But I, I honestly don't remember it as being either but I think that I would have Taco Bell might have stood out at the time and was like what on earth is that? I'm yeah. pretty sure I'd never heard of it I I genuinely don't remember so, it being Pizza Hut, but uh, but I don't remember a lot of things these days. As I said, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die on that hill. But um, yes, it's a, certainly a window into the big world of um, merchandising and uh, product placement opportunities. Of Tu Wong Fu, the most memorable thing was the drag queen transsexual transvestite speech. Why they have to give it to Luigi Alba's character never made much sense to him, but I get why they love the line. Yes, one of the few, one of the few decent lines in that movie, to be honest. Yes, so as I say, we'll be back in another ten days or so with the Blade franchise getting a quick shuffle at. Uh, but until then, take care of yourself and each other um, well yeah I suppose if you want to get in touch with us before then please do so um, either through emails and podcast at fudsonfilm.com or through the old twitters there at fudsonfilm um, so until next time I've been Scott Morris and Drew Tavendale have you still been Drew Tavendale? Mellow salutations valued listener <laughs> and have a peachy day other valued listener <laughs> it's good, goodbye to the pair of you <laughs> <laughs> bye bye Thank you.